So as we enter into this new year, you know, when you, when you enter into a new season, into a new year, what you in, invariably tend to do is that you find yourself reviewing the last season. You find yourself reviewing the last year. You take some time and you sit down and you think, Yo, what, was, what was last year like? And you think about what the events of the past season of the last year were that might have been meaningful to you, that might have made a difference in your life. You think about the things that you've accomplished that you feel proud of. You think about the things that you are less proud of in the last season. You think about the state of your relationships. You think about where you are in relation to the people around you. You think about the things that you started and the things that you didn't start, the things that you started and finished, and the things that you didn't even get to. And then, of course, you think about what are some of the things that I might be able to do better at in this new season that lies ahead. And then as we go through this new process that we do at the end of every season, at the beginning of a new season, we oftentimes set for ourselves new goals for the new year, the season that lies ahead of us. And sometimes we call them resolutions. And so sometimes we, we might say to ourselves, well, you know what? In the last year, I, I wasn't that good at um, helping others. Um, at the beginning of 2023, I said that was something that I wanted to do. I didn't end up doing that. In 2024, that's something that I want to do. Um, or you might think that uh, you want to spend more time with your family. Last year, you said you wanted to do that, but you didn't. Things got in the way, whatever the case might be. And this season that lies ahead, you say to yourself, I want to do more of that. Now, many of the things that we say we would like to accomplish, many of these goals or resolutions for the new season, for the new year, that we do want to achieve, many of those things actually relate very strongly to our habits. They relate very strongly to the rhythms that we have set and chosen for our lives. Because many of the things that we want to achieve in the new year require prolonged, asserted time and effort. Yeah, there are sometimes things that are short um, and instant, but a, a lot of the time our goals um, that we want to achieve require us to form new habits. It requires us to reevaluate what some of the rhythms, the rhythms are of our lives and how we would want to shift and change those things in the new season. But you know, the thing about habits is, the thing about behaviors, about rhythms, is that they are complicated things to master, isn't it? Um, and, and I've learned this over and over, you know, there, were, there was a season when I wanted to turn my keg into a six-pack, and I learned that it would take a prolonged, asserted effort for me to get there. 
And the same is true, I hear an amen over there. <laughs> the same is true for so many other things in our lives. We need to change some of the habits that we have um, made part of who we are. There's this interesting quote that I, that I came upon while I was doing some reading. And the author of this book that I was reading says, Your perseverance under God is in your habits. There's a sense in which getting to heaven and hell hangs on habits. Show me a man's habits and you'll give me a glimpse into his very soul. The habits you develop and sustain today will affect whether you persevere till the end or make shipwreck of the faith. Simply put, your habits are one of the most important things about you. It seems that habits aren't just a life hack. They're essential for how we live our lives. They appear to be crucial as part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's interesting, you know, that we, we don't often consider the effects of our actions, the effects of our prolonged, consistent behavior, the effects of our habits, and, and the extent to which they can shift the trajectory of our lives, even small things. I looked up what the, how the dictionary describes a habit, and this is the, um, the definition. It says that it is a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. And so when I was trying to change my keg into a six-pack, there were certain things that I needed to give up, but they were hard to give up. You know, it was something that had become a habit. Now, if we follow the story of man, our story, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, we note that even God understood that habits play a very important role in our spiritual lives, too. We see evidence of this throughout Scripture. Now, this evening, for the next few minutes, I'd like us to take a look um, at a habit. Habit is a word that could be replaced with a number of other words, as we can see, but I'm just using it because it's something that we use every day. Um, it's probably more helpful to think of it in the sense of a discipline. Um, but I'd like us to look at this discipline or this habit that God's people practiced in the form of a particular prayer. And I'd like us to take the next few minutes to consider the effect of that habit, the effect of that practice, of that discipline, and what it did to God's people. And we're going to read from the Old Testament a few verses from Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll read the first eight verses of that. And this is what that sounds like. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees 
and, to, and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, some of those words I'm quite sure are quite familiar to us, particularly if we focus a lot of our reading on the New Testament. Those words have actually cascaded into the New Testament as well. Now, as we look at verses 4 and 5, those are actually the verses that I want us to focus on for the next few minutes. Now, verses 4 and 5 there form a particular prayer that the Israelites took from that text and they prayed it. And this prayer is called the Shema. Now, the Shema prayer is actually one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. And when the Jews did pray this, it was tradition for them to turn and to face Jerusalem. So for us, it would probably be that way. So the Jews would turn and they would face to Jerusalem. They would cover their faces. Most of them would cover their faces with three fingers like this, closing their eyes to, symbol, to, um, to form the Hebrew letter Shin. Um, and then they would pray and recite those, those words. And it was a prayer that would be recited first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening before bed. And it was a habit. It was a tradition that framed the day of God's people. It was... Um, something that kept them mindful of his presence at the beginning, at the start of their day. And it was something that kept them mindful of his presence at the end of their day. And so Jews, in fact, right up until today, they will pray the Shema every day. They will start their day with those words. And they will end their day with those words. And so we find this prayer first mentioned here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now the Shema as a prayer gets its name from the first Hebrew word of the prayer. Obviously it wasn't in English, it was, it was in Hebrew. And the first Hebrew word of that prayer means to hear, as we find out there in English. It also means to listen. A translation of the Hebrew word Shema. And so Shema could mean to either hear or it could mean to listen. They have two different meanings. 
And this prayer has been one of the most influential traditions in Jewish history, functioning both as a Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, kind of like, as well as a hymn of praise. There's the story that um, Jewish rabbis tell of something that happened during World War II, where many families had become dispersed because of the war situation, um, possibly similar to what is happening right now in the Middle East, and many children were taken because their parents may have been killed in the, in the conflict. And so these Jewish rabbis heard about um, these children who were being kept in a monastery in the southern part of France. And in their duty in trying to gather together all of these Jewish children again, they decided to journey down to this monastery in the south of France. They arrived there as a group and they spoke to the to the, to the priests, the Catholic priests at the monastery, and they said to them, we are gathering together all of these Jewish children again. And the, the Catholic priest said to them, we don't know if we can just hand these children over to you again. And besides that, we don't even know, and neither do they in all probability, know whether they are still Jewish or not. And so this was a predicament for these Jewish rabbis. And so the, one of the, the, the Jewish uh, rabbi leaders said, I know what I'll do. And so what he did was he waited until evening time and he went along with the Catholic priest into the dorm where these children were sleeping. And what he did was he, he closed his eyes and he covered his eyes with those three fingers ind indicating the first letter of Shema, the Shin letter. And he said, this prayer. And he, and he said the prayer, and as he was saying the prayer, he could see who the Jewish children were. They slowly raised their hands and closed their eyes, and they said this prayer. And so it was, in a sense, this pledge of allegiance to Yahweh that had stayed and stuck into their hearts. And so it brought them to a place of belonging and freedom again. Now coming back to the text, the text there, if you were to read back a few chapters and if you were to continue to follow the story that brings us to these few verses, then you'll notice that in the opening section of Deuteronomy, where this famous prayer first appears, Moses is addressing the new generation of Israel as they prepared to enter into the promised land. It was a new crop of people. Their grandparents and their great-grandparents had passed away in the 40 years of desert travel. And so there was this new crop of people about to enter into the promised land, and Moses shares these words with them. And what Moses was doing was he was urging the Israelites to not repeat the mistakes and the errors of their parents' generation. He was saying to them, don't do what your parents did as you step into this new season that God has prepared for you. And Moses is addressing this new generation of Israel as they prepare to enter. But to do so, 
the people had to hear. They had to listen to and to love God fully above all else as the words of the prayer instruct. And this was the habit that he wanted them to form in this new season. So I want us to look at the powerful words of this prayer to understand why this habit was so important for this people. And how us modern Christians can also find wisdom and a rhythm in this teaching. And so we look at the verbs in these verses of prayer. The opening line there says, Hear, O Israel, of verse 4. Now that doesn't simply mean to let sound waves enter into your ears. That's not what hear means in this context. Hear the word shema or hear means to allow the words to sink in. Allow the words to provide understanding. Allow the words to generate a response. It's about action. In Hebrew, hearing and doing are the same thing. And the next instruction in the prayer is to love the Lord your God. Now, what we translate into English as love here is the Hebrew word ahava. Ahava. And ahava or love is not about the warm, fuzzy, emotional energy that we feel when we like someone or when we are enjoying something. Much like listening, biblical love is about action. And so you avah someone when you act in loyalty and faithfulness. And so for Israel, loving means faithful obedience to the terms of their covenant relationship with Yahweh. And those terms are the laws and the commands that make up the body of this book, Deuteronomy, if you did a study on it. Obedience to these laws, to hear and to love, is not about legalism. It's not about trying to earn God's favor by doing those things. It's about love and active listening. It's about relationship. It's about give and take. It's about hearing and doing. Now, if an Israelite loves Yahweh, then they can more easily respond to God's teaching and to his guidance. And this is why the words listen or hear and love are so tightly connected and repeated throughout the opening speeches in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses made. Now, as I mentioned, this prayer, verses 4 and 5, would have been recited every morning and every evening by the followers of God, the followers of Yahweh. Now, as we start this year, how will we begin our year? How will you begin your days? What will form the rhythm 
of your time? Or will 2024 be a new year, but with the same old you? This prayer is about listening to and loving God. But the prayer continues there as we see. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, the people are to love God with all of their beings, with everything that they can bring to him. Their knowledge, their existence, everything that they are, is to love God with action, with obedience, and with faithfulness. Now, the words of this prayer take on an even deeper meaning when we look at the context of the ancient Israelites and see how counter-cultural it was for them to serve one God above all else. You see, the Israelites were a people who had been immersed in polytheistic cultures for generations. Polytheism is the belief in or worship of more than one God. So they had always been amongst peoples who worshipped many gods. They had a God of this, they had a God of that. They had a God for everything in their lifestyle. And so this was the influence that they were constantly exposed to. And so a very important part of this prayer was for them to realize and to recognize that the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is one, not many. And so from their beginning in Canaan, as we read in, in, in the scripture, to the long years in Egyptian cavity, captivity at least, to their traveling through Canaanite territory in the wilderness, the Israelites had always been surrounded by people worshiping many different gods. It was the way to do your religion. And so, Moses, under Yahweh's leading, believed that loyalty, obedience, and love for their one true God would be the only way to life. And that one of the greatest threats to Israel's future would be dividing their allegiance between different gods. And so the Shema was prayed daily to remind these people constantly that Yahweh alone was the one true God. Now, we live in a time today when there are many things that want to be the essence of what we hear, of what we listen to, and what we end up loving. Think about what some of those things are that consume your hearing today. What are some of the things that demand that you listen now? What are some of the things that want to take and absorb your time and your love? And so there are many things today that have their own version of Shammah that say, Hear, O Bevan, I demand your attention. 
I demand your love. And those things come to me first thing in the morning, and they come to me last thing at night. The prayer goes on from here to show the value of passing this conviction on to later generations as well, in verse 7 there. To spare them the tragic results of idolatry to other gods. You know, if we keep doing wrong things as a people, guess what the next group of people are going to do? What are the ones who are looking up to us now or who are looking at us now? What will they say of us if we continue in ways that don't bring glory to God? Moses says there, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you're walking down the road and when you lie down and when you rise up all of the time. In all the rhythms of your life, be hearing, be listening, be loving. Now, the Shema is not a prayer that stayed in the Old Testament. The Shema actually moved and continues to move with God's people. The Shema is a prayer that would have been recited by Jesus while he was growing up. And so for Jesus, this was a formative prayer, and he even drew upon it in his teachings. When he was asked which command in the Torah was the greatest, Jesus answered with these words. He says, the first of all the commandments is, and this is from Mark chapter 12, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. When Jesus was asked that question that made him give that answer, he did not just grab that out of the air. Those were words that had become part of him because of the rhythm of the lifestyle that he had been following. And so we see how the outworking of this habit, of this tradition, is reflected also in the essence of Jesus' teachings. And there are many more. Another one that I just want to mention from the New Testament comes from the book of Revelation. And John references also the essence of this prayer, the Shema as well. In Revelation 2, he writes to the church at Ephesus and he says these words. He says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He carries on there. And then in verse 7, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, there are many other verses as well which reflect the essence of the principles of this prayer. But for John here, in his writings in Revelation, 
according to him, you either give your allegiance to Jesus and allow that to influence your habits, your rhythms, how you see and how you act. You either do that or your allegiance will belong to destructive powers. And in Revelation, he calls them beasts that will also govern how you see and what you do in your life. So whether you do it or not, there's coming something that's going to determine where you stand with Jesus. And John tells us in Revelation that one path leads to life, only one. Your God is one. And the other path leads to death. And these ideas and images from John's vision come from Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Specifically, I believe, from this prayer, the Shema. Now, what does this prayer mean for followers of Jesus today? What does it mean for us? That was written a long time ago. You know, there's a reason why God's people have been meditating on these words for generations upon generations. They are simple words, but acting on them holds the capacity to reshape the course of an entire people. I wonder if many of the conflicts that we see in the world today would have even started up if people held fast to the principles that are communicated in God's word. For God's people, praying this prayer every day kept God's love and his loyalty in the forefront of their minds. And it drove them towards obedience. Not out of obligation or out of duty, but out of love. And Jesus' words in the Gospel of John also echo the Shema. He says there in John 14, The one who has my commands and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. He's saying there, the ones who hear me. The ones who listen are the ones who I will reveal myself to. Following Jesus is about love. That sounds warm and cushy. But you know, as we receive Jesus' love, we respond with gratitude. Something happens inside of us when we receive his love. We respond with gratitude, with humility, and a commitment to honor and love in return. Love kind of generates more love, which results in faithfulness and obedience. And these are truths that can literally transform us from the inside out. Having habits and disciplines formed around truth and keeping that at the forefront of our minds and acting on them daily as we enter into this new season just as the ancient Israelites did, I believe will change how your year begins. It will change the rhythm 
of your days. And it will change how this year ends. And so as we enter into this new season, I want to encourage you to hear. I want to encourage you to listen. And to know that your God is the one. There are many other gods out there who want our attention and our love and our devotion. Know that the God that you came here this evening to worship, he is the one. And I want you to explore that this year. Make that the most important one of all of your habits. And see what loving Jesus can do when we place him at the center. I want to close in prayer, but maybe this evening you find yourself in a space where you don't feel motivated. You know what? You're in a space where you don't think that you can hear. You don't think that you can listen even as we enter into this new season. I want to encourage you, find somebody this evening before you leave here and pray. We've got some elders here, Lindsay's here, Adrian is here, Andrea's here, um, Anais is here. Find someone to pray with and pray with.